declared us as children. Thank you, Dan. Let's just stand, stay standing, and let's pray. Lord, we thank you by your grace that we can stand before you as your children today. Now we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher. We come with eager hearts to hear what do you want to say about our lives. We bring them to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm so glad you're here. Have a seat. My name is Kim. Last week on Facebook, I saw something that uh, kind of described me. At least I have an offspring that declares that this describes me. Take a look at this. It first tells how a normal person tells a story. There's the start of the story and the end of the story. Yeah, that's pretty straightforward, right? But then here is how I tell a story, okay? There's the pre-story. There's the prologue for context. Then the start of the story, followed by too many details. Then a semi-related side story. Okay, wait. Back to the main story. Oh, something I just now remembered. And then I just lose my train of thought. Oh, what was I talking about? And then I realized I've been talking too long. So I wrap up and get to the end of the story, finally get to the point. And lastly, I apologize. <laughs> Does that remind you of anybody you know? Maybe they're sitting right next to you. Maybe. Well, you know, sometimes when I read the writing of Paul the Apostle, Sometimes he just kind of reminds me a little of that, like a bouncing pinball machine where thoughts are loosely connected. And today in our Hope Rising series, we're going to cover those first 12 verses of chapter 4 in his letter to the Thessalonians. We're going to see Paul jumping topics a little bit. But when you dig into this master psychologist train of thought, you know, even though things may seem unrelated, I think Paul really was amazing in his understanding of human beings. And one thing you're never going to find at the end when Paul's been talking is an apology. I think when we get to the end today that we're going to be able to see an underlying theme and how it can inspire hope in every one of us. So would you grab your message notes? It looks like that and a pen, and your Bible if you brought it this morning. And let's open to chapter 4. And remember, if you don't own a Bible, we have one for you in the lobby. We hope you'll take one as our gift. Now, just some backstory again. Paul had been talking to these people at a town called Thessalonica and had led them to belief in Christ and helped them start a church. But then after only about a month or so, he was run out of town because it was a hostile environment for followers of Jesus. So Paul went to other towns to teach, but he stopped because he wanted to in encourage those people back at Thessalonica. He wanted to, to lift them up and give them guidance about life. So this was just a quick tweet before he was off to the next location. What would he include? Well, look at this diagram. The first three chapters that we've already covered are mostly about encouraging words, like you are loved in spite of persecution. And now we get to chapter four, and this is where it gets even more practical. This is about how to live as a follower of Jesus. It's like Paul is talking to youngsters, like kids in the faith, and he wanted them to know how to live, and what was their business now that they were followers of Christ. You know, it's important for each of us to know what is our business. And Paul is saying, if you want to live the life of a mature follower, if you want to grow, then this 
is important. You need to know what your business is so that you can live a distinctive, set-apart life. Now, I just want to give a heads up to any parents in here who might have young children. Part of Paul's teaching here gets a little PG-13, okay? And especially in our day, anybody who's junior high age or older, we all really need this message. But I just want parents to know that there is an aspect this morning that's for the mature audience. So Paul covers three areas that we're going to look at this morning. Three areas he said we need to make our business now that we follow Christ. These things set us apart and make us distinctive and give others hope. So I hope you'll jot these down. First, Paul says, make it your business to please God. Please God. Now I want to share with you, this is really personal for me. I'm going to get a little vulnerable right off the top this morning. It's a fragile part inside of me. See, in the early years of my life, I invested my efforts very seriously in pleasing, well, everybody. My family, my friends, my teachers, my, my music teachers. You know, I just wanted to do it all right. And you might think, nice, the compliant kid. Well, see, it became more like fear. Fear that others were not pleased with me. Not just a little concerned, okay? I was becoming a collection of others' expectations. And the day came when I realized that being around people, even coming to church, was scary for me, not because I was inept at relating, but because I had an inner critic that was merciless. I said yes when I needed to say no. I didn't even know what I thought because I was so busy worrying about what everybody else thought. I smiled when I really felt sad. And when I blundered in a conversation, as we all do, it took me three or four days to get over my self-flogging. Can anybody relate? There are many kinds of addiction, and this one is called approval addiction. It's caring too much what others think. It can take over your life. And look at what Paul says. We all need to get squared away. Look at verse 1. He says, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. Would you circle those words, please God, as in fact you are living? Paul is saying this is your business, pleasing God, not everyone else. Now, he says, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Circle more and more. Do what more and more? Please God. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Now that sounds simple, but it's crucial. Please God. The authority of the Lord Jesus. Paul is saying don't live to please others. Make him your authority. The one who came and showed his compassion by going to the cross for you. Give your attention to pleasing God, not others. Live for an audience of one. So then the question for me became this. Well, if I'm going to live for an audience of one, is it just like doing a dance for God? I mean, is he hard to please? Does God look at me with a stern face? Does he have his arms crossed? unhappy with me over all my imperfections. See, I had tried to, so hard to do it all right that it got all muddled up for me. 
I thought God wanted my best performance too. See, those images of God, those projections, they stunt my growth in my relationship with him. They get me stuck in my mire of shame and condemnation. I had to realize the distortion in my view of him. See, even when God corrects me, he's not scolding. Jesus came to give you and me hope, not self-hatred. So here's what I did. I took a stand, really, against myself about trying to please people. It took courage to hang a little motto on my refrigerator. It's faded now, but it's still so critical to me. And when I first hung it up, I wasn't even sure I believed it. This is what it says. What you think of me is none of my business. Oh, there's a part of me that just wants to say to you, are we okay that I said that? See, it's deep in my bones, this desire to please you and you and you. These horizontal relationships had become all-consuming. But you know what? I was getting clearer about this. When I say, what you think of me is none of my business, what I'm really saying is, yes, I am sensitive to what others think and feel. But what I need to be clear about is that I'm not responsible for how you think and feel. Do you see the distinction there? It's none of my business what you think. And what is my business is pleasing God, period, what God thinks of me. And I am so much better off now that I've entered this pursuit of recovery from approval addiction. You know, I still struggle at times, but some of you might be able to relate. Maybe you are working so hard to please everybody. Maybe you're even trying to please someone who cannot be pleased. Maybe they're dead and gone and you're still trying. You see, it could have been a parent or a relative or a coach, but they refuse to be pleased. And, and I want to say, I'm sorry for your pain because that, that really is pain. But listen, it's not your fault. It's deep in their personality. You know, it says in Proverbs that people-pleasing is actually dangerous. Look at this, Proverbs 29. Fearing people is a dangerous trap, but trusting the Lord means safety. Now, why is it a dangerous trap? Because when you allow this never-ending pursuit of pleasing people to take root in your mind, it becomes your habit. It forms your imagination. I was listening to Bill and Christy Galtier on their soul Soul, Soul Talks podcast, that's a mouthful, they were talking about how we underestimate our imaginations and how much of our literal thinking comes out of our imaginations. They said that when I idolize what others think of me, I begin to imagine what they're thinking. That's called projecting. And then I believe that I'm accurate. And then I respond with fear to that projection. You see, that's why it's a trap. Now, I included on your notes some scripture references. If you find that you struggle in this area, I recommend you make a study of it in your Bible and then that you come along with me and pursue recovery. Work a program to break this habit, but don't waste another day in approval addiction and hang it on your fridge. What you think of me is none of my business. 
You don't need everyone's approval to be happy when you're striving to please God. Okay, what else does Paul say is my business? Well, it's make it your business to control your own body. Here we go. Here's the PG-13 part. Now, when Ron asked me to take this part of our series and I looked at these verses, I, I looked at him and I said, you want me to talk about sex? <laughs> you know, we, we're going to talk about sex. Is everybody okay with that? Okay. Now, this is how we all got here, right? So it's not some abstract thing. You get that? This is a topic that is fiercely close to the heart of God. We don't talk enough about sex. We live in a sex-saturated society, but we don't think enough about it. We don't value it enough. We're responsible to talk about it. So here we go. Paul says, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Now, before we can really grasp why Paul jumps into this subject, we need to understand this word sanctified. It's God's will that you should be sanctified. What does that mean? Well, some of us love a diagram, so I wanted you to see this. Look at this. This is your life. Look at it from left to right, okay? You're born, and maybe one day comes when you decide to come to the cross and you recognize that Jesus came to give you life. And at that moment, you cross over. Your old life gets traded in, and you become a brand new creation. And the Bible calls that being justified. Look up at the top of the screen. Justified. That means you're way up there. In God's eyes, you're complete. You're headed for heaven. He sees you through the blood of his son. And forever, you will be his son, his daughter. That's justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned. And then at the same time, that's just the start because Paul says God wants you to be sanctified. That means you embrace a process. So look at the bottom of the cross again. Starting at that circle, you embrace a process where you allow God to transform you more and more to begin to think and look and act like Jesus. That's sanctified. Now, it doesn't happen overnight, does it? It takes patient, grace-soaked transformation. And that jagged line there shows that it's not smooth sailing all the way. It's hills and valleys. It's a jagged line. See, we are justified. We go through being sanctified. And one day, when you get to go to heaven, that's when you will be glorified. That's when you're going to be perfect like he is. Is anybody here perfect today? Let me see your hand if you're perfect. Oh, good. I'm not perfect. We are all in a process. The Lord has got us going through this sanctification process. And for some reason, when Paul talks about being sanctified, he launches right into a sex talk. He says, avoid sexual immorality. Now, why would he start here? Well, let's talk about these Thessalonians he was writing to. Not only was uninhibited sexual expression permitted in their culture, but it was actually promoted. 
It was sex-saturated. In that day, Thessalonica was a society where men and women, too, used sex to try to dominate others. And it was highly chauvinistic against women. I brought a quote here from a Greek writer of that day named Demosthenes. This was their normal. He says, we keep prostitutes for pleasure, mistresses for our daily needs, and wives for bearing children. See, sex was not precious. It was abusive. It was about saber-rattling. There's a picture here of an archaeological discovery that was found in 97 in Thessalonica, where lavish banquet rooms and dining halls were on the main floor, but up above were small cells where women were kept with locks on the doors. And in modern day, we would call it sex slavery. See, these people lived in a highly sexualized scene. It's all they had ever known. And it's so much like the world that we're seeing here today. It's crazy. Very little was taboo. And now notice what Paul says to these brand new followers of Christ. He didn't get on his high horse about what's happening out there, saying we should demonstrate, you know, or we should criticize others' lifestyles. Now look at verse 4 again. He says that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Now, do you hear how radical Paul's challenge is to these people? He was telling these brothers in Christ to voluntarily give up their power to dominate women by learning to control their own body. And you know what? People must have listened. You know how we can tell? If we look at the pages of history over the next several hundred years, we can see that there was a definite shift away from this licentious lifestyle, closer and closer to the teachings of Christianity. And it all was because Jesus Christ valued women. The power of this truth is for us today, too, to control your body means to use it for what is holy, even sexually. And some might say, oh, that's so narrow. That's so limiting to my freedom. Well, honestly, there has been a lot of confusion, even in the church, about sex. And many people think, whether they lived in Paul's day or in ours, that when a God follower thinks about sex, it's with a sour face and a collar up to here. And a tight-lipped, killjoy, Victorian attitude. No fun allowed, or they blush to even mention it. Now, we might have even heard, you know, sex is bad. I mean, talk about mixed messages. Sex is bad. Sex is evil. So just save it for marriage. No wonder we're confused, right? God created it as a good gift. And when he made Adam and Eve and put them in that garden and they first tried it out, you know what? God didn't say, ah, what are they doing? Just play with the giraffes. Leave each other alone. <laughs> God was going, this is good. It really is good when we exercise control. Think about it this way. In every other area of the body, exercising control is considered to be a great thing. I mean, diet and exercise, we can control the body or the, let the body control us. Now, some of us approach our bodies this way. This looks just like my cat at home. 
It says, I've decided to take exercising more seriously. Today, I moved left. Tomorrow, I go right. <laughs> that can be me some days. Well, controlling our body does take work, but, and it also takes focus, knowing why we're working. I mean, we can look at Tom Brady, that age-defying 42-year-old quarterback who's won how many Super Bowls? Like six? How many? Six, I think. Incredible. We may think, whoa, that's impressive, but we don't see the grueling days when he controlled his body. I mean, people make fun of his avocado chia smoothies. Every day of his training is micromanaged to ensure that he can play football as long as possible. And the athletes at the top of every major sport have one thing in common. They have God-given abilities matched with an insane craving for success. And then they take control of their bodies in a training program that would make the rest of us cry. And Paul is saying, crave for success. Don't settle for what you see others doing. I want to inspire some hope here. I want you to live distinctive lives. Even in the bedroom, you can have the best if you will take control of your body and avoid sexual immorality. So we have to ask, what is immorality? Well, it's whatever is outside of God's plan for sex. His plan is within the covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife for life. But what our society tends to celebrate is hook up, shack up, and break up. <laughs> you know, you watch any television or any movie, they're not celebrating 50 years of marriage. No, that's way too boring. It's about the new connection that might satisfy briefly, but has no staying power. Paul says in verse 5, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Now, what that means is when you honor God's plan for sex, you're making a declaration. Did you know that? You're declaring that there is a God to those who don't believe that there is a God and who live in their own self-defined paradigm. In this section of verses, there's a word used for immorality. It's the Greek word pornea. It's where we get our word pornography. It refers to sex outside the sacred covenant of marriage, but it also refers to the whole business of buying and selling sex. It was a huge problem in Paul's day, but it's also a huge problem here today. What is pornography if it isn't the buying and selling of sex? It feeds human trafficking and prostitution. It captures and enslaves the minds of people for a lifetime. And Paul is saying, be clear what your business is. It isn't the business of pornography if you are a Christ follower. Now, a lot of people are talking about finding their sexual identity, finding out who they are. And what scripture says is that when we come to Christ, that we bring all of ourselves to him, that's what it means to be sanctified. We make him Lord with a capital L. We bring it all, including our sexuality. Our theology is greater than our biology. 
I like how Pastor Andrew over at Bayside says it. He's Irish. So he says, sex can be greedy or godly. (laughs) It can be greedy or godly. It's true. He says, greedy sex is putting yourself first. Good sex is putting your spouse first. But great sex is putting God first. See, it's all about making him Lord. Putting God first, whether you're married or you're single. Now, I have just a word for those of you who are single here today. You have a sex life because we are sexually responsible as human beings. You get to honor God, too. And now, I realize that for some of you who are single, it may sound today like I'm saying, you know, I'm vacationing to Hawaii, and you're going to go off to, you know, Duckwater, Nevada, but hey, have a good time. I want to be tender here. I know there is loneliness for some of you. There is pain. But the truth is, you can be whole and complete by cultivating meaningful relationships with men and women and by investing whatever God has equipped you to do because that's the way Jesus lived. And by the strength of Holy Spirit in you, you can live a distinctive life where you take control of your body instead of allowing it to control you. And you can have a powerful platform for proclaiming your faith. Look at verse 6. Paul says, and in, that, and in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. As we told you and warned you before, he's saying there are emotional and physical and spiritual consequences to when we ignore God's plan. And I love the message paraphrase of verse 7. It says, God hasn't invited us into a disorderly, unkempt life, but into something holy and beautiful. Listen to this. As beautiful on the inside as the outside. Would you underline that phrase? As beautiful on the inside as the outside. In verse 8, therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Let's put these thoughts together. See, what makes keeping these ideals about life on the inside, making it beautiful, what even makes that possible is when you do life every day with Holy Spirit's help. See, we're not talking about behavior modification. We're talking about heart transformation. Look at what Philip Yancey has to say about it. He said, marriage strips away the illusions about sex pounded into us by the media. Few of us live with oversex supermodels. We live instead with ordinary people who get bad breath and body odor, who menstruate and experience occasional pee on the seat. None of us are acquainted with that, right? Who have, who have bad moods and embarrass us in public. We live with people who require compassion, tolerance, and understanding, and endless supply of forgiveness. So do our partners. Such is the ironical allure of sex. It brings us into a relationship that offers to teach us what we need more. And that's sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. Just like Jesus loved. The kind that lays down its life for another. 
you might be saying, well, Kim, you know, I believe all this, but hey, my life has not matched up. It's too late for me. Maybe these verses are triggering some painful memories of times that you were self-focused and it wasn't beautiful. You know, many of us have some layer of sexual sin or abuse or shame that leads us to feeling possibly lonely or maybe disqualified. Please listen to me. We are all sexually broken. Paul had made mistakes. I know I've made mistakes. I'm just as vulnerable to sin as any other human being in this area. These verses are not meant to bring up guilt and shame. Jesus is holding out his hand. The Bible says that when we confess our sins, he is eager to forgive us. He separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. God wants to give you hope here by offering you help with your addictions, maybe even a sex addiction. And you know, our sexuality is a great place to launch into that sanctification process that God wants us to have, to receive his forgiveness, and then with Holy Spirit's help, to begin to control ourselves by training. Maybe we find a friend who will compassionately walk alongside us Maybe we go to celebrate recovery. You see, it's when we begin to train. That's when we will start to see the resemblance of God's sacrificial love inside of ourselves. And Paul says in verse 9, it's all about letting God's love flood your life. Look at this. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. There Paul goes again, saying more and more. He's saying, this is what it's all about. Make your love your highest goal. You see, the real proof of where I am on that sanctification journey, it's not about how I'm doing at romance or about how my retirement account looks or what my patrons are saying uh, on their reviews uh, on Yelp about me, or my child achievements, or my academic standing. It's not about ranking up if I love video games. You know what it is? It's this. Am I more loving now than I was this time last year? It's like the gauge on the dashboard of my life. Let's make love our goal. Now, are we okay, everybody? Let's move along to the third area that we are told by Paul to make our business, shall we? He says this, make it your business to mind your own business. Can you believe those words are in the Bible? He says this, and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business. Stop looking at the neighbors and work, work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Now, the reason for that is that in Thessalonica, these new believers heard that Christ was going to return for them and take his people to heaven, and they thought, hey, why should I work? I'll just lay back, you know? I'll just let others take care of me. And Paul is going, no. This is a radically different life when you follow Christ. And you're not just different in the bedroom. You're different in the boardroom. 
Maybe some of you aren't in a boardroom. Maybe you're in a classroom if you're a student. Whatever your work environment is, Paul is saying, make it your business to be distinctive, to stand out. You mind your business by showing up with your best self in your workplace, or if you're retired, in whatever God has given you to do. I loved getting to hear a clip of a of a sermon taught by Martin Luther King. And we brought a little audio clip for you to listen to. He's talking about being a street sweeper. Listen to this. What I'm saying to you this morning, my friend, even if it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, go on out and sweep streets like Michelangelo painted picture. Sweep streets like Handel and Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. If you can't be a pine on the top of a hill, be a scrub in the valley, but be the best little scrub on the side of the reel. Be a bush if you can't be a tree. If you can't be a highway, just be a trail. If you can't be the sun, be a star. It isn't by size that you win or you fail. Be the best of whatever you are. I love that. Isn't that good? Yeah, be the best of whatever you are. See, we are given an invitation to live distinctive lives. Why? Well, we already read it in verse 12, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. What if in these three areas we've talked about, we were different than the rest? I mean, how would that capture attention and win respect and draw others to Jesus? Well, that's the bottom line for us. So write this down. Paul is challenging us, be distinctive enough to attract others to Christ in you. What if the goal of the people of Twin Cities was just this, to please God. Wouldn't it be powerful if all of us were just to make that our goal? How his divine power would fill our lives if we were out to please him? How would that impact our impact for the kingdom? And if we all sought to control our bodies and devote our lives to purity, what if the staff over at the hospital got to witness a husband or a wife sitting at the bedside of their beloved spouse, holding a hand, praying for a miracle right up to death's door. I've seen that happen again and again, and how it speaks of the change in a person's heart that comes through sacrificial love. What if an employer in our area hired a person who is part of Twin Cities, and then they realized they had hired somebody who's different, somebody who shows up on time, someone who has integrity, who's conscientious. What if somebody came and just stopped by our church for a visit and they came away going, those people are just so loving. What it does, what it will do is it makes us distinctive and it offers hope to this world. And it reflects glory back to God. So let's make that our prayer this morning. Would you pray with me right now? God, I'm so grateful that you're at work in each of our lives. 
that you're not finished with us, that you've told us to work out our salvation, to keep going, to keep pressing in hard towards you. Because what you're interested in is our resembling your son more and more, making us like Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that in all of these areas, that if we have disappointed ourselves in you, if we have fallen into sin or a pattern or a struggle or a hang-up, that you are right here holding out your hand today. We thank you. You can teach us how to please you. And Lord, you can teach us how to be pure in our bodies and devote our bodies like a temple, like a sanctuary to you. You can break through places that we feel really stuck. And Lord, that you can teach us how to do our work as unto the Lord with all of our might and be like an angled mirror to reflect glory back to you through our lives. And now we thank you for meeting us here this morning Help us to walk out what you've told us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.